0: Welcome captives and captive friends to episode 25 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists r and I was expecting to be recording this whole episode and a lot of exciting new content at the Seeker 2020 International Conference this week. But as I am sure most of you are aware, the conference had to be cancelled in response to the coronavirus outbreak. A state of emergency was declared in California just a couple of days before the conference was due to begin. I know that many participants, including the large brokers and insurers, were having to drop out, as, as well as many captive owners as well, with with travel restrictions in place. So I think the right decision was arrived at, and I appreciate how difficult that must have been for Dan Toll and everyone on the Seeker board to, to make that call. Seeker is always a great gathering of the captive markets but as one opportunity is missed another one usually arises and as I acted quickly to switch my Friday morning plans from a transatlantic flight to LA to a three hour train journey up to Newcastle for a stag weekend I also started firing off a few emails to see what we could bring together for this next episode. The first to answer the call was my good friend Charles Winter, Head of Risk Finance and COO at Aon Global Risk Consulting here in London. Charles, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Richard. And I'm sorry I can't compete with Palm Springs. <laughs> not Palm Springs or, or Newcastle, uh, in fact. So just about recovered from uh, yeah, a bit of a boozy weekend. For our American listeners, if you're not sure what a stag do is, it's basically a bachelor party. Exactly the same thing. Uh, so I just Indeed, got back. So I'm
1: reassured to see Richard looking so fit and well only a day or two later.
0: Yes, a day, a day a recovered of a, a big mug of tea or two. So um, Charles is here to discuss all things hard market formation activity in Europe specifically and captive developments concerning solvency two. our captive owner interview this week is a special one with those responsible for running african risk capacity insurance company limited a class two insurer domiciled in bermuda and our third interview is with erin hackett senior audit manager at crow in vermont who provided some insight into the role of captive accountants Charles, uh, just to kick us off, for those of uh, our listeners who may not have come across you, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your role as Chief Operating Officer and Head of Risk Finance at Aon Global Risk Consulting?
1: Sure. So I've been involved in the captive market probably for the best part of 20 years in various forms and I've been doing the current role for a few years now. Um, it splits into to two parts as the title would suggest. Um, for this part, probably the less interesting bit is the, the operations piece which is really keeping the Aon Risk Consulting business in the UK on the straight and narrow in terms of of good procedures, processes, governance and compliance. Um, But that underpins all the work we do in terms of advising our clients, which is the important piece, which is really where the the risk finance side comes in. So what we're doing is we're advising um, our clients on their, their risk issues, which will be about risk retention, risk transfer, risk quantification, Um, working closely with our actuaries and other um, colleagues. Uh, What we're doing is seeking to find solutions to to client, client problems. Often, those will have a captive in the middle of them. Either they're an existing
0: captive owner or think a captive could be a solution for some of their problems. Absolutely. And so one of those one of those problems uh, currently uh, is obviously a, a fast hardening market uh, and sat in a large broker. Uh, it's a field person to discuss it with you. So we're around, I think, probably 18 to 24 months into a hardening insurance market now. I think we feel like there's a bit more to come. How have you seen that manifest itself in Increase interest in captives during uh, two thousand and nineteen, and even earlier this year.
1: I think the acceleration of, of the hardening of the market into the beginning of this year has really been the watershed point in terms of the increase in interest in captives. Last year, I think that the hardening of the market was more in pockets, uh, whereas what we're seeing now is pretty much every client, every sector, every geography, every class of business being impacted. So it's a question for everyone now. Um, what we've seen is definitely an uptick in interest. So. In terms of what's been keeping me busy and what I'm going to be doing later today, later this week, we're doing a lot more internal training on captives risk financing alternatives for our colleagues so they can be at the front line helping their clients. Um, In terms of other inquiries, we are certainly seeing some increased interest from clients with some very specific uh, requirements they're looking to solve, be it capacity or pricing. I think one of the things which is interesting in in context is that the hard market has been talked about for a long time and has only really seemed to have bitten really just in the last um, few months and what we're seeing in some cases is the significant increases some clients are being asked to pay. Actually when you look back over the last 10 years of what their rating was it's maybe going back five years in terms of rating into what was still seen as a hard market. And for one client in particular, we saw even a doubling of the rates would put them back where they were in 2011. So it is about context, but at the same time, we fully understand that clients have budgets and any increase in price needs to be mitigated as far as possible.
0: So Ben, you talked about obviously a real uptick in, in interest. Are you expecting to see that interest to be reflected in the latest captive formation statistics, particularly in Europe? So I'm sure that Captive Review and Business Insurance are doing their research at the moment on on the new uh, captured numbers from 2019, would you expect to see increased growth coming out of uh, the Europe region?
1: Yes, I had a quick look at the business insurance ones, um, which I got my hands on a day or so ago. So I think they still show that that numbers are net declining. Um, And I think Guernsey put some figures out recently as well, which showed that whilst 2019 was the best year of formations for a while, net numbers still declined. So that was 19, I think 20 is, is a different place. I think there are a few other things in the background though, and um, I'm not sure captives are necessarily the default for increased risk retention that they may have been five or let alone ten years ago. Not to say they're not relevant, but I think there are clients looking to say, okay, I'm taking more risk, if that's the answer, why a captive in a way that maybe is more questioning than, than was before. So we'll have to see how that then does actually convert into formations. So, whilst clients are questioning whether captives are the default, I think what we are also doing is explaining or some things which may have seemed straightforward, but what are the benefits of captives and why should they be used? And oftentimes when, when we do this, the thought that a captive is maybe a layer of complexity rather than a solution uh, changes to an understanding of what a captive is really going to, to bring together, such as the ability to actually deliver a higher attention or more complex programme globally. Now, that ability to look at how you access markets in, in the broadest way, and that's being seen as a bit of a trend in some areas. So I think what we're doing is we're maybe having to step back and, and educate people because it hasn't been as strong a topic for the last five,
0: 10 years as it has been. Which I presumably is also reflected, you mentioned, in, in the training that you're doing internally within Aon to educate brokers who maybe this might be their first experience of a hardening market and they might not have had that captive Discussion before. Absolutely.
1: I think there's a, there's a generation in the industry which hasn't really had to, to think about this.
0: So, one of the things we often hear uh, that PCCs, uh, protected cell companies, or other cell vehicles can be useful for is kind of being used as short term captive facilities or for smaller organisations to kind of dip their toe in the water, for want of a, a much better phrase. Um, are these particularly useful, do you think, in, in the hard market? Are you, do you think we're going to see them utilise the, the cell vehicles? Quite possibly. I think there
1: are a couple of examples which I've seen just recently within Aon using the White Rock facility which maybe show where sales can be particularly useful in in a tactical way. And one is um, a Dutch example using the White Rock facility in, in Malta which is really just providing a, a fronting and access point for reinsurance markets for two troubled sectors food and waste and it is providing access to clients who otherwise were struggling in the domestic retail market. The other one which is a UK example which is quite an interesting one using the uh, Gibraltar White Rock facility. Again, it was looking for an IFA who had to demonstrate cover was in place. Cover was uneconomical in the commercial market, and was actually an impediment to trading almost. So White Rock was seen as a way of, within two weeks, putting in an alternative to that if the commercial market wasn't a, wasn't available. So there may be two specific examples of of, of really the speed of delivery which uh, a cell can give you, which wouldn't be possible in the captive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that's for kind of potentially new entrants into, into the captive market. But for existing captive owners, are you seeing different strategies already to utilise the captive and, and just increase retentions?
1: So retentions often have been static for many years, um, driven by the fact there hasn't been the incentive to detention. So we are definitely seeing a questioning amongst captive owners of can they do more. Many are in quite fortunate places that the captives are well uh, capitalised after... You know, many years of not having to have stressed their balance sheets particularly. I think some other things we're seeing is, you know, like the, the Dutch example, there is now some differentiation between what direct and reinsurance markets are prepared to do. So we're seeing some which we haven't seen so much of late, which is that market access feature of CAPT is coming to the fore. And I think the other thing which we've seen in the way of um, placing risks is you know, often within a layer there can be great price disparity between the different players in that. And so we've also seen captives filling gaps, not where capacity isn't available, but where capacity doesn't look priced um, appropriately for the layer, and taking risk in a much more patchwork way um, across programs. And then maybe a final thing which we're seeing, which again is a response to often underwriters are looking to maintain premium volumes rather than necessarily just retreat from risk through uh, higher retentions. And it can be difficult to get the the discounts uh, appropriate for taking um, increased risk. So increasingly, you know, are looking at taking quota shares, which many have done for years. But that's a, you know, an alternative way of looking to take take risk in the programme.
0: Well, thank you, Charles, for that introduction to uh, kind of what you and Aon are seeing in this hardening market in relation to captives. Well, when I was in South Africa, I met with Ange Chitate, interim CEO of African Risk Capacity Insurance Company, and Malvern Shiroume, Chief Underwriting Officer of the Bermuda based Class 2 Insurer. Ange began by explaining when and why ARC Insurance Company was founded.
2: It was founded in 2014, primarily to provide risk transfer um, solutions for disaster risk management to African sovereigns.
3: Yeah, and also I think the, part of the rationale was to actually assist African countries in managing drought risk, which has been haphazardly managed. The way that uh, the company would help to, uh, the, those countries to manage it is through early warning systems and pre-planned contingency plans in terms of what happens when there's a drought. So that's part of the value proposition.
0: Great, and so who are the uh, members of Ark Limited today, and, and what insurance does it does it provide?
2: The members are the countries that have purchased uh, uh, insurance policies today, and at the current risk pool, which is risk pool seven, risk pool six. Sorry, we have uh, nine countries that have purchased policies uh, for drought coverage. Uh, These countries, do you want the names? Yes, countries: please, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Togo, uh, Chad, uh, Zimbabwe. Madagascar, Côte d'Ivoire, Okay, uh, Senegal, Senegal, Mali, Mali.
0: Niger, Burkina
2: Faso. Burkina Faso.
0: Great. So, in terms of the actual insurance company, then how it's performed over the years, and what have been uh, some of the most uh, significant claims that it's uh, that had to pay out as well? Because presumably, only any insurance company such as this one is only as viable as, as the claims it provides to its to its members.
3: Sure. So, quite skewed in that respect because Senegal has been the recipient of the largest claims mm-hmm. over our six, to seven year history. The first claim being 16 million in 2014, uh, 12 million last year and also another 10 million through what we call replica, which basically is a facility where donor and uh, development partners can actually buy uh, a policy to sort of uh, to supplement the country policy. So in effect, Senegal has received almost 40 million of ARK Limited payouts since inception.
0: Obviously, first up, Arc Limited provides that insurance coverage, uh, which is probably the most valuable part of the whole operation. But do you also work with members in terms of kind of risk management or risk mitigation with, with, with governance and how they, how they approach this, how he's approached these uh, situations?
2: So basically, we move back now to uh, ARK as an ARK group. Uh, our group was formed or established as an AU, Africa Union, uh, organ, to provide disaster risk management solutions holistically to countries, to assist them to, to manage disasters for, for climate resilience. Yeah. So, which includes capacity building, um, continuous planning how they can plan for any um, uh, disaster, mainly drought for now. Then, when they, when we pretty much successfully help them to build capacity and we give them a certificate sort of good standing. They become legible for the insurance product, and they move over to Arc Limited. So it's a holistic
0: approach in terms of uh, capacity building and risk transfer solutions, financial solutions. Yeah. So then looking more uh, technically on, on the uh, insurance company itself, Arc Limited is uh, domiciled in Bermuda as a Class 2 insurer and managed by uh, Marsh, I believe. What is the reason for this domicile choice and, and the structure as well?
3: Okay, so I think the domicile choice was informed by the preferences of our initial or founding capital providers, which is uh, differed from the UK and KFW uh, in Germany. They wanted a regulatory uh, environment which would uh, provide as much solvency and, uh, and, uh, and confidence in the company uh, and also be able to house a mutual because, you know, uh, the company is actually a mutual which is co-owned by all the m- members who, who participate in the pool. But also, quite importantly, the, the, the end goal is actually to transfer the company from Bermuda to a regulatory environment or, or country with, on the continent. And the Bermuda environment actually enables us to do a, a, an in-mass transfer without
0: liquidating the company. So that was quite key in in the choice of Bermuda so uh, in terms of in terms of where it might ultimately transfer is it Is that a political issue uh, who who's, who's in the running uh, at the moment for that
3: uh. i think it's still it's early days because yeah. we need to have an equivalent regulatory regime um, in uh, in at least one African country for that to happen, and at the moment you know the, the risk based regulatory regimes are still in the infancy on the continent, so it will take a bit of time. But, um, yeah, so, so I think if you look, maybe you probably look to uh, countries like South Africa, Kenya, Mauritius, to name a few. But, you know, it's still, it's still early days. Yeah.
0: Regarding, obviously, the, the company itself must hold quite a lot in assets to be able to play, pay such claims that you've already mentioned, uh, Malvern. Uh, what, what kind of uh, investment strategy does, uh, does the insurance company have?
2: Okay, so we have an investment portfolio that focuses on fixed income predominantly. Last year, we introduced uh, equities capped at 10%. The investment portfolio, uh, obviously, is there as a supporting income source. Um, it's done well in the past two years. Uh, previously, initially, it was below target, no, not as we had, you know, an anticipated. So we we changed the guidelines to include equities, and it's. I think I must say, to date, it actually has performed above target, but also more than we had, uh, you know, we had um, we had planned. So it's, it's a good thing. The strategy is
3: really determined by the preferences or the risk preferences of our of our key capital providers because they don't want to overexpose mm-hmm. the capital. So that's why this emphasis on uh, on fixed income and a much lower proportion of that going to equities. Um, so that's that, that's really the main reason why we have uh, fixed income.
0: So then how do you expect to see Arc Limited evolve over the next five years? Obviously you mentioned the possibility of it maybe moving to the continent but in general would there be exploring other uh, coverage areas outside of uh, drought?
3: Yes yeah, so I think there's growth and in many ways, so there's growth in terms of products. So you know, going into maybe flood and tropical cyclone, there's also growth in terms of country reach. So you know, going to more countries than we've managed to sell or, or, or reach so far, and also growth in terms of the actual insurance coverage that's purchased by those countries. From my perspective, that's sort of the main, the main areas. But I think
2: what's well, I think what's key is that in the next five years, we're looking at the relevance against the climate. Uh, changes and we know that these are quite clear and quite um, you know, concerning. So the frequency of the disasters, the the number of disasters. I mean, we look at now, moving from drought, like you said, we're this floods, tropical cyclones, and even um, O and is outbreaks and epidemics. So the next five years is looking at at um, diversifying our product and for us to remain relevant to the African demands. I mean, wildfires are are also upcoming as a key concern from the climate change um, uh, matter. So it's more about growing our portfolio to diversify in, in response to the demands
0: of the, of the continent. Is it a hard sell to attract other countries uh, and governments to participate in the, in the pool? Is there a conscious effort from you to go out and attract them, or do, they, do you expect them to come to you? What's the approach there? It's
3: a conscious effort to yeah. attract, and it's a very difficult sell because uh, insurance is a risk management tool, and maybe even risk management itself are not really is not really a concept that is well uh, understood and used within the sovereign space. So we really go in there, and then we start talking about risk management and risk clearing, which is basically the you know the use of other complementary tools like uh, contingency funding and, and contingency loans. So there's a quite a lot of work that's required to get a country ready and be, and being prepared to part with money to, to, to buy insurance. So it's quite a difficult sell, and we have to actively go and seek the countries. Uh, but actually, they, will, they, they have to express an interest first, through the political um, arena, which is where our sister entity, the ARC agency, comes in. But it's uh, it's not uh, easy by any stretch of the imagination.
2: I think beyond insurance being very nascent, we're looking at just issues of priorities for the African governments. How does one justify buying an insurance policy for an event that may not happen... And then uh, not focus on the you know um, the hospitals, the, road, the the roads, just the infrastructure you. So it's more about also political, and also you know generally when you when you when you're the government uh, minister and you're looking at your um, your your, your priorities and and the civil society that's pushing against that, you obviously want to respond to the, the, the key you know merging. Um, um um issues and your potential or your you know your um, unlikely or likely events so it's it's it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough stuff
0: obviously Malvern, you you provide primary insurance to the members uh, of arc limited what's your approach to the to the reinsurance market and do you buy external uh, reinsurance as well
3: yes so we have to protect our, our balance sheet and we buy uh we buy excess of loss reinsurance um uh, from international markets to achieve that and also to, to sort of spread, you know, transfer the risk from ourselves. And we'll continue to buy insurance, reinsurance, because we you know we, we can't assume all the risk on our balance sheet.
0: And so, obviously, we know we're in a we're in a hardening market now all over, not just in Europe and America, but in Africa as well. As have you started to see that in in reinsurance rates? Is that become a more challenging renewal phase?
3: I think we will, we are yet to go to the markets. We will normally start going uh, uh, February and March, but you know we will have to do some sort of uh, trade off between you know the reinsurance premiums and the protection. But one thing for certain is that we can't uh, get rid of our. Of our insurance.
0: So one area uh, that is actually particularly big in Bermuda uh, as well as other jurisdictions is the insurance-linked securities and catastrophe bonds base. Is the uh, natural catastrophe bonds, is that something that uh, Arc Limited has, has explored or, or would consider uh, utilising in, in the future?
3: We're definitely uh, exploring it starting this year and would, would also consider using those uh, securities as a, as a form of risk transfer.
0: Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat and i believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities yes richard it is you don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive so what are the different options well you can execute a lost portfolio transfer which is a reinsurance structure undertake an insurance business transfer enter
1: into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions.
0: And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. So, Charles, one of the off-sited headwinds affecting captive operations and formations within the EU over the last five or six years has been solvency too. Um, IOPA, Europe's insurance supervisors, has been instructed to undertake a review of its rules during 2020. And I understand that the European Captive Insurance and Reinsurance Owners Association, ECIROA, has consulted its members and provided comments already to IOPA regarding the principle of proportionality and the treatment of caps. So Charles, I guess the question is, is there any hope, do you believe, that captives could see some relief or some respite from some of the more burdensome parts of, of Solvency 2
1: Well, I'm, colleagues of mine have worked closely with Equiroa you know, throughout the, um, the, the process, and I think you know, some progress has been made, but maybe not as much as anyone uh, might have hoped for. I think the captive market, whilst important to large corporates, is still a small part of the overall European insurance market, and getting the voice heard... I think can be difficult given competing priorities. I think it's encouraging that there are uh, some captive concessions, not concessions, but differentiation uh, already in different markets, looking at either reporting or degree of oversight, which does help to lower the, the hurdle slightly. Although you know, it remains that Solvency 2 was a game changer, I think the, the industry has risen to make it as painless for clients as possible, but it is a different regulatory structure from that which you experience in um, other places such as the US or uh, overseas or the offshore themselves.
0: Yeah. And do you, do you think that they might be, do you think maybe in this times of a, a hardening market, maybe there's more of a, a case, maybe regulators or even we're going to talk about the OECD and BEPS a bit later, but do you think there's the hardening market kind of should make our voices louder and the corporate owners of captives voice louder? It would be nice if that were the case, whether I think it will happen I'm, I'm let's wait and see so if you could see if you could request one or two changes uh, to solvency 2, what what in particular do you think would be a nice a nice change to to the directive?
1: yeah, so I think I might set my sights slightly differently, um, and I think this is maybe a more achievable objective, and what I think would be really helpful is accepting that solvency two is what it is and has certain structures, and rather than changing those is is maybe the way the regulators can deal with uh, captives. So one of the, the things we, we definitely see is that difference in that commerciality, that open-for-businessness, which you see in, in some jurisdictions, which tends not to be mirrored within the Solvency II ones. There are variances within that, and I think a speed and, and responsiveness would go a long way to overcome um, the increased level of, of regulation.
0: Well, something which is, is kind of somewhat related to the to scene in, in Europe in solvency 2 is one of the outcomes of the post-BEPs world that we now live in is, is kind of more pressure and scrutiny on, on domicile choices. And we've seen in Europe a degree of interest and prompting towards home domiciling. I understand that at AMRE, the French Risk Management Conference earlier this year, it was actually announced that the French government was beginning an initiative to make captive domiciling in France more attractive. I think there's been there's been some push towards it within the French insurance circles but it has never really been acted upon. So do you see this desire or or pressure to home domicile your captives manifesting itself in anything other than just a bit of talk? I think there's
1: definitely more scrutiny on domicile and domicile
0: choice. There have been French captives before
1: as we mentioned just a minute ago you know, a lot of what regulators can do to make that easier might be within their own gift to give in terms of attitude and approach even if the regulations don't change. Even just a couple of weeks ago uh, back in February so we saw Cayman added to the uh, EU blacklist of non cooperative tax jurisdictions and that immediately prompted a phone call from a client so that sort of thing that reputational aspect is important. Interestingly you know, the news that Bermuda is removed from the European blacklist at the same time doesn't necessarily cause European clients to want to flood to Bermuda. So I think it is a one-way coming in of the tide, as things stand, to get closer to um, home jurisdictions. Maybe one exception to that, which is quite an interesting one, and actually I think does make some sense, is that we're seeing an increase in interest in U.S. domiciles from European um, companies. You know, it's. A, a, a welcoming, open and very pragmatic um, regime in most states which have captive legislation. And particularly following the 2017 uh, tax reforms, the tax rate is, is neither aggressive nor, nor, nor punitive. So it looks like it has a, hit a useful middle point uh, for some captive owners or would-be captive owners. So it'll be interesting. That we've seen one do that already. And it'll be interesting to see if more
0: follow that trend. That's interesting. That's been something that I've been talking about for quite some time actually, both on this podcast and in my last year or two at Captive Review, is that if you are, a, presumably you mean a European company which has a significant U.S. operation, yes. U.S. risk, it would Norm- need to normally, have some-
1: but it, you could, and that's been the examples we've seen, um, although I think you could almost argue that the U.S. isn't that difficult a place to get to, so even without substantial U.S. operations,
0: it's, it's a good on paper choice. Yeah, no, interesting. Definitely want to watch this space. Well, regarding the United States, last year, due to recording a lot of content at both Seeker and the uh, VCIA annual conferences, there were a few interviews that I never had the opportunity to use. So when Seeker was cancelled last week, I dipped back into my archives and remembered a really insightful interview I conducted with Erin Hackett, Senior Audit Manager at Crow, who's based in Vermont, Erin is very well connected in the US captive market and she provides some insights on the role of captive accountants.
4: I'm a senior manager with Crow on the audit side, and I help to lead our Burlington, Vermont office, which has both audit and tax professionals that focus primarily in the captive insurance industry. Uh, In addition to that, I'm responsible for the execution and delivery of quality audits for my clients, but I really help to lead the office and make sure that Crow is seen as a leader for future accounting pronouncements and other changes in the industry so that we can understand the potential impacts to our clients in the captive industry as a whole.
0: And so how different then is auditing a captive insurer compared with a general or commercial insurer?
4: You know, it can be very different, but for the most part, it's really not all that different. In general, Pro takes a risk-based approach to our audit methodology, so the risks tend to be fairly similar um, between captives and the traditional or commercial insurers. How we address those risks may be slightly different scale-wise, but overall not too different, uh, especially for the more sophisticated captive insurers, which we are seeing even more frequently. These captives are underwriting many varied lines of coverage, making the most of their funds uh, through the use of investment portfolios and really using the captive to achieve different types of risk mitigation.
0: And then uh, when it comes to working with captives, what kind of uh, red flags can show up when, when auditing a captive?
4: There are areas that we tend to spend more time understanding and discussing with management and definitely certain areas that present more audit risk than others. Uh, You know, with the current focus on captives and specifically micro-captives, we want to ensure that management is aware of the requirements to qualify for tax positions they may or may not be taking. We want to just make sure that they're able to provide support for whatever position they're taking. So, You know, we work with management as well as our internal specialists like Dan Kosaila to make sure that we're understanding all of those positions. The facts and circumstances of each captive are slightly different, so there's really no one-size-fits-all way to audit a captive. It's just really important to understand the certain facts and circumstances and talk through those with management to make sure that our audit approach is specific to the company.
0: So is the role of external auditors, do you think, becoming more important as as captives of all types uh, come under more scrutiny?
4: So I may be a bit biased, (laughs) but I would say yes, that... uh, The role of external auditors is becoming definitely more important. And as mentioned, we really want to have conversations with our clients throughout the year, not just at the time of the audit, so that we can stay ahead of the changes that are coming and any impacts intended or unintended uh, to those changes. Many companies, risk retention groups uh, specifically, have adopted the new corporate governance standards and with that have their external audit teams participate in board meetings more frequently, which is great. It's a great time to have those types of conversations, but captives of all sizes really should be getting us involved in having those conversations so we can talk through those issues.
0: So finally, uh, we are recording a day after the official announcement that Aon and Willis Towers Watson intend to combine their businesses in a $30 billion transaction. Now I know Charles, you probably can't comment too uh, greatly or talk specifics at this point and the deal is not expected to be completed until early 2021 anyway. But briefly on the captive side, because we are talking about Aon currently the second largest captive manager in terms of uh, captives under management and Willis Towers Watson a very significant player as well. This is only going to expand the, the size of, of Aon's book and captive capabilities I, I imagine.
1: Absolutely and that's the logical conclusion and if you look at the, the numbers again looking at the, the business insurance numbers the combined Aon Willis captive numbers depending on whether you count cells separately or just the, the PCC entities themselves. Falls either side of, of of the Marshall number in terms of total numbers managed. So I'm sure we'll have debate about who the largest yes, manager is. Yes, I'm sure forward. there'll be plenty of debates <laughs> about that. <laughs> but maybe you no know, more importantly than, than pure numbers is what it's going to mean for the industry and, and our clients. And you know, I think if we look at it through the lens of firstly clients, what should they get? You no know, deeper, broader knowledge, new tools, new experiences, um, new clients, collaborating together. So that should be a positive experience. That's certainly what we intend to make it. And then for shareholders as well, what's in it for them? Improved performance, improved efficiencies, and you know that'll lead to some changes in the, in the way we work and what the businesses look like. But as you say, one day in, difficult to comment much more than that. But. Um, it should be exciting
0: yeah I'm sure it'll be uh, mentioned a few times on the Global Captive podcast between now and the end of the year and then as ever we'll do our best to get the key players involved when it's all done signed off and we can find out the scoop we can sign on what's what, happened yeah. exactly what's <laughs> going to happen well that is all we have time for today on the Global Captive podcast I'd just like to thank uh, Charles Winter especially for arranging this with me in, in the space of just uh, three working days and with me being basically off grid for three days drunken somewhere in Newcastle so also thank you to our other guests, Ange and Malvern at Africa Risk Capacity Insurance Company and Erin Hackett at Crow in the US. See you next time, captives.